You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. My name is Benedict Ashley. I'm a professor of moral theology at Aquinas Institute of Theology in St. Louis, Missouri. This is the second lecture in a series dealing with the Bible and Christian morality, moral theology. In the previous lecture, I tried to indicate that there is a great deal of difficulty today in connecting what is taught in moral theology and moral instruction with its scriptural roots. Because some people think that the Bible is out of date. Its moral teaching is so historically conditioned that one cannot apply it to the new problems of today. Another question they raise is, is there anything really different or specific about Christian morality? All religions seem to have pretty much the same moral values, and we can arrive at those by the use of reason from our experience. They're simply a matter of ethics, we say. And I tried to show in that first lecture that although there is a changing element in the scriptures, there's also a permanent element that is given for the whole human race and until the end of time. And secondly, that although we have much in common with other religions as regards our moral values, and much in common even with secularists, nevertheless, the Christian goal of life is to reach God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that makes a difference, not just about a few things, not just about the fact that we attend Mass on Sunday, but it influences every serious decision in our life, and even some of the less serious decisions. That sets the problem for this course. I want now to begin to try to show how this works out. First of all, by talking about the history of Christian morality. And in this lecture, about what the Old Testament has to say about morality and how that applies to us as Christians. The morality of the Old Testament for the Jews centered around a covenant with God. This covenant was not something that the people themselves initiated. It was initiated by God. God chose them as his people, as his witness to all the peoples of the world. And he said, I'm making an agreement with you. If you carry out the task I give you to be my witness, then I will be with you in all that you do, and I will ensure you that your happiness will be achieved. In the book of Deuteronomy, we read how Moses, at the end of his life, called the, the Jews together and explained to them this covenant with God. And then finally he gave them the choice whether they wanted to accept the covenant or not in these impressive words. This is from the 30th chapter of Deuteronomy, beginning at verse 15. Here then I have today set before you life and prosperity, death and doom. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I enjoin on you today, loving him and walking in his ways and keeping his commandments, statutes and decrees, you will live and grow numerous. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to occupy. If, however, you turn away your hearts and will not listen, but are led astray and adore and serve other gods, 
I tell you now that you will certainly perish. So God gave the Jews a choice, a choice which is given to us as Christians as well, to enter into a covenant with him. And his side of the covenant was that he would show us the way of life instead of the way of death. We know historically that in the early years of the Christian church, when people were baptized, they were given some moral instruction. First of all, of course, they were taught the creed, like the Apostles' Creed. And then they were given a moral instruction, which we find in the very early document called the Didache, called the Two Ways. And it was like this that Moses put before the people. The way of life, the way of death. Take your choice. That covenant then became the basis of Old Testament morality. The Jews agreed to keep the commands of God, and God agreed to be their God. Not for them alone, but for us all. They were to be witnesses in order that eventually we too could enter into this covenant. Consequently, when we look at the Old Testament and ask, what gives unity to these books? There are many books in the Old Testament and they're very different in character. They read differently. They're in different styles. They were written at different periods. And most of the books were written step by step, modified and rewritten and re-edited. And so at first, we're puzzled as to the unity of all this. If this is the Word of God, how do you put it all together? How does it make any sense? And we have to find some kind of unity in that. I don't mean by that to wipe out the distinction of the different books. Each one goes at the truth from a different angle with a somewhat different point, and we need that. We need that variety. And when we study the Bible with modern scholarship, we learn to see these different points of view, these different experiences, all of which were guided by God, to give us one great message. But even for the Jews, for the people who wrote those books, there was a unity. And the unity centered in the first five books of the Bible. The books that we call the Pentateuch, five books, and that the Jews call the law, the Torah. The Torah is the heart of the Old Testament. It's the most sacred part. It's the part around which everything else centers. And while perhaps Scripture scholars would not altogether agree with me, I like to think of this, the rest of the Bible, as a kind of commentary on the Torah. It helps us to understand the basic message which is in those first five books. And in those five books, there's still something even more basic, and that is the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments, which are given us twice in slightly different form, once in the book of Exodus, and then again slightly modified in the book of Deuteronomy. And those ten words, or ten commandments, are God's fundamental moral teaching. They tell us the most important rules of our life. If we know those and observe those in their fullest, we will be on the right track toward God. Everything else in the first five books somehow makes these Ten Commandments clearer and more precise. Their stories and historical accounts in the first five books, which help us to understand 
that it is God who is speaking through this, why he gave the commandments, and give us examples of how those commandments were carried out by certain saints like Abraham. And on the other hand, what happened when they were disobeyed and when these commands were broken. And so when we read the Bible looking for God's guidance, we ought to center on those commandments and try to interpret everything else in the Bible in terms of that. When we do that, we will find a good example of why an over-literal reading of the Bible is a mistake. For example, we read in the commandments, you shall not kill. And so some people say, well, then we have to be pacifist. We can't kill some in war. We can't kill in self-defense. But if we read through the Pentateuch, we will see that that can't be the meaning of the commandment. Because elsewhere in the Pentateuch, capital punishment is required, just wars are commended and even required, and self-defense is allowed for. So it's necessary for us to take the Ten Commandments as they are interpreted and enlarged in the rest of the scriptures, particularly in the rest of the first five books of the Bible. In those first five books, though, we find much more than simply these rules of morality, much more than the Ten Commandments and the particular laws that make those commandments more concrete and apply them to different situations. We find two other types of laws. One type are the laws that relate to government how the government is to be set up and regulated. If you recall, originally Moses was a kind of monarch, a king over the Jews, in that he was the single leader that led them out of Egypt. And he was a single judge who saw that the commandments were carried out. And then the time came when the people grew larger and larger and he found it impossible to carry out his task. And so his father-in-law Jethro advised him to appoint lesser people and to delegate some of his powers of judgment and leadership to lieutenants, subordinates. And so gradually a government grew up for the Jews, a governmental structure or constitution, we might say. And those are what are called the judicial precepts of the old law. They're not precisely moral in character, rather they have to do with the organization of the government. And of course, those are particular to the Jews. Every people has its own laws, its own customs, its own geography, its own situation its own economic system. And so the Jews had a kind of government which in time changed and which is not relevant to us. And so while the moral commandments in many respects are relevant to us, the judicial commandments are not. Does that mean, however, that the judicial commandments of the Old Testament are of no significance to us today? Can we just leave them aside? No, there's a great deal that we can learn from them. St. Thomas Aquinas, for example, points out that philosophers tell us that the best form of government is a mixed form of government, where you have democracy of the people, and you also have some kind of executive for the government, and you have a legislative for the government. Now, that's in time what is set up in the old law, is a mixed form of government. And in the past, political theorists used to look to the Bible and they said, well, the government of the Jews gives us a good lesson on how government is to be set up. Their laws no longer bind us. We no longer have to have exactly the same institutions, the same constitution as we find in the Bible. 
But the biblical constitution will teach us something about what good government is. And so we can still learn something from the judicial precepts of the Torah. There is another kind of precept there, which we call the ceremonial precepts. And there are very many of them. All kinds of regulations for what today we would call the liturgy. Regulations about the sacrifices and the ceremonies in the temple. Regulations about diet. Regulations about the vestments of the priests. All these are what today we would call rubrics. Rules for conducting worship for the liturgy. Every people has to have some form of worshiping God, a form of worshiping that is significant to them, that has symbols that embody their faith. Every religion has some kind of liturgy, some kind of ceremonies that express that particular faith. And so the Jews had ceremonies that fit their traditions and their belief in the one true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Those ceremonies are no longer relevant to us today. They were directed to the Jewish culture and the Jewish people, and they have a direct relevance now still to Jews. But they don't apply to Christians as a group because our symbols are necessarily somewhat different. We might think, therefore, that those passages of the Bible, which are sometimes rather tedious reading, are irrelevant. There's nothing to be learned from them. But that's not true. The ceremonies, the liturgy of the Old Testament, looked forward to the New Testament. Jesus worshiped in the temple and he and St. Paul and the apostles saw in the worship of the temple the foreshadowing, the prophecy, as it were, of things to come. The liturgy of the Old Testament, therefore, is fulfilled in the Christian liturgy. It's taken up in the Christian liturgy. And it's not simply something passé and of no importance to us. By understanding, reading those portions of the scripture, we learn a great deal about our own liturgy and its meaning. You can't understand the meaning of baptism, for example, unless you understand the meaning of washing, the ceremonies of washing in the Old Testament. You can't understand the Mass, the Eucharist, if you don't understand the sacrifices that were offered in the Jewish temple. And those ceremonies, like our liturgy, have a double meaning. On the one hand, they tell us something about God, but they also tell us a lot about ourselves and the kind of life that God expects of us. In the Chinese religion, Confucius took great care to build up a certain kind of ceremony. And he said that the reason he did it was that nothing teaches the people how to live so well as ceremonies. It's through the rituals of life that we learn what it is to be a decent human being, a thoughtful human being, a polite human being, a compassionate and sensitive human being. Every time we go to Mass, we are taught something by the ceremonies themselves about what it is to live the Christian life. And so we mustn't think for a moment that these ceremonies are obsolete. They have moral meaning as well as their prophetic meaning. And so when we turn to the first five books of the Bible, the heart of the Old Testament, we find there the basic moral instruction and with it a liturgy that helps us through its symbols and its ceremonies and rituals to live a life 
which is sensitive, which is appreciative, and which is in accordance with the mind of God. Now there's a second element that we will find in the Old Testament, which is sometimes neglected by people, but which is also very important, and it's different than the law. It's different in its literary expression, and different really in its source. And that is what is called the wisdom literature. We find, for example, the book of Proverbs. We find the Psalms, which are praise. We find the book of Job, which is a kind of dialogue. We find the uh, stories of Esther and Tobit, which are narratives, which are not strictly historical in character, but are rather moral tales, somewhat like the parables of the New Testament. They're stories that teach us a moral lesson. This wisdom literature, which makes up quite a bulk of the Old Testament, differs from the Torah in that the Torah is a narrative leading up to the giving of the Ten Commandments at Sinai and has at its heart legal prescriptions, rules or norms that tell us to do this and don't do that. In a sense, it's a law book, although the word law which we use in the scriptures is better translated instruction because God is not simply laying down laws to show his authority. Rather, he is guiding us on the way. He's an instructor, a guide. This other literature does not have this legal form. It's not stated in rules. Rather, it has the form of sayings, wise sayings, or stories with a moral. And we call it wisdom literature. The scholars believe that this was largely the work of certain people among the Jews who were called the scribes or the wise men, the sages of the Jews, men of experience, men who had lived a life and seen a lot of things, perhaps had traveled because we find in it things that come from the literature of Egypt and the literature of Mesopotamia, the experience of the ages gathered together in pithy sayings which don't exactly give you a rule of life so much as they make you think. Most of our mistakes in life are because we don't stop to think. We don't learn from our experience. We don't learn from others more experienced than ourselves. And so this literature, this wisdom literature is intended to say, now look, look, young man, if you had been through the things I've been through, you wouldn't make those fool mistakes. So listen, quiet down a minute. Listen to what I have to tell you, and you'll do better. A great deal of this wisdom literature is expressed in poetry. And that's important too, because we learn a lot in poetry in the symbols and the metaphors of poetry, which reaches our heart and imagination and adds a great deal simply to a dry law or rule. It helps us to feel, to understand why this is right and why that is wrong. It brings into play our whole personality. And so poetry is an important moral teaching too but it can't be reduced simply to rules. It's rather appreciation, understanding of the beauty of right conduct and of the ugliness and meanness of sin. I think we should also emphasize those stories that I mentioned. I would like to read to you a passage from the book of Tobit, 
which perhaps you don't often look at in the Bible, but which is a very appealing story of a very good man who, however, had misfortune. And then he was helped by an angel. He and his son were helped in the troubles of their life by an angel. Now again, this is a story. We don't have to take it too literally, but we have to find in it its moral teaching, its wisdom teaching. And this is what the angel says to old Tobit. A king's secret it is prudent to keep, but the works of God are to be declared and made known. Praise them with due honor. Do good and evil will not find its way to you. Prayer and fasting are good, but better than either is almsgiving accompanied by righteousness. A little with righteousness is better than abundance with wickedness. It is better to give alms than to store up gold. For almsgiving saves one from death and expiates every sin. Those who regularly give alms shall enjoy a full life, but those habitually guilty of sin are their own worst enemies. So you see, this is not something that you can reduce to a rule, but it's trying to make you appreciate that pretending to be holy, pretending to keep the commandments, going through a lot of ceremonies is not what the Jewish life is all about. What it's about is concern for your neighbor. That's what's important. And that is the experience of Tobit. It's the experience of all of us who have seen how often religion can be something on the surface. And that the real test of it, in the last analysis, is whether we think about other people. We have then, in the Old Testament, these several kinds of moral teaching laws with historical examples to back them up, then wisdom literature, the expression of human experience, which often contains poetry and story to make its point and to make them strike into the heart and the imagination. And finally, there's a third type, and that is prophecy. The great prophets, and not only the books called the prophets, but also the books of Kings, for example, and Samuel and Kings contain many things about prophets. These books of prophecy are intended to do two things. On the one hand, they warn us that we must not understand the laws and the wisdom of the Old Testament in a superficial way. We must look to our heart. Morality is something, as Jesus is to say later on, that begins within, with our motives, with our heart, with our purposes, with our goal. And the prophets keep reminding the Jews of this by saying what God wants is not sacrifice, not all these ceremonies, but obedience and love. That is what is important. The other thing that the prophecies do is to tell us that the Old Testament is incomplete. There is a future that is still to be seen, and we must look forward to that. And so the Old Testament, in these lines, teaches us a great deal about our life, and much of it very concrete and practical, and it teaches us an appreciation, and it teaches us to look forward to a higher teaching, to be open to further enlightenment by God. We're saying that in the Old Testament we have not only law, we have not only wisdom, but we have prophecy. And that prophecy has two aspects. On the one hand, that it tells us about the attitudes, the heart that must go into our practice of the law, and on the other, it shows us the future. We read, for example, here in the prophet Hosea, God is speaking to him, and he says, 
For it is love that I desire, not sacrifice, a knowledge of God rather than holocausts. So it's not just external ceremony. It's not a mere external practice of rules and regulations that constitutes the true life of the Old Testament. Sometimes people think that. They think that the Old Testament was a law that was purely external. And it's only in the New Testament that there is a real love of God, a real practice of virtue for virtue's sake. That's not true. Again and again, the prophets tell us that mere external conformity is not enough to make a person truly moral. God loves not holocaust, sacrifice, but obedience and love and concern for the neighbor. Now, when we put those things together, those different aspects of Old Testament morality, we see that the teaching of the Old Testament underwent a historical development. Not only were there all these different ways of looking at and talking about and teaching morality, but there was also a gradual unfolding of what the Ten Commandments meant. You can say, you shall not kill. But what does that mean in practical life? You can say, you shall not steal. But what is stealing? What is just in economic matters? What are the rights of other people to their property? Those things are not immediately evident. We learn them through continued experience. And from time to time, there are certain new problems that arise. I've already emphasized that the Bible is historical in character. It does relate a development that took place, not just one single truth handed down on Sinai. But that truth handed down on Sinai as it developed in the understanding and practice of the Jewish people. Jews today express that by the idea of what they call the oral law. The oral law for the Jew is somewhat like tradition is for the Catholic. We say that we know God's will through the scriptures, that's fundamental, but also through tradition because the Bible came out of tradition. There was a Christian church before there was a New Testament, and there was a Jewish people before there was an Old Testament. The scripture is a privileged formulation and statement of the roots and the basis and foundation of a tradition. And so the Jews also not only looked to the written scriptures, but also to an oral tradition. And they believe that this oral tradition goes back to Moses. It's not something brand new. It began with Moses. And it is developed through the ages by the work of the sages, the great rabbis who were students of the law and who interpreted the law. That leads then to still another kind of moral teaching, a kind of moral teaching that we call casuistry. The word casuistry is from the word case. And you know, we talk about a law case, a legal case. The rabbis used to meet and discuss with each other what a particular regulation in the Old Testament meant and how to apply it in a given instance. That attempt to apply the law in particular cases and then 
having set a precedent by making a decision that it means so-and-so in this case, means that later on when a similar case comes up, you argue from case A to case B. That's the way a lawyer does. That's a lawyer's type of thinking. He's concerned about precedences in law, what this judge decided and what that judge decided in particular cases. And he argues not so much from some kind of general principle as from case to case. And so among the Jews, there grew up a large body of teaching, moral teaching, which is casuistic. That is embodied then in Jewish documents called the Mishnah and the other works which taken together are called the Talmud. And for the Jew today, the Orthodox Jew, the Talmud is as important as the Old Testament is. It's not so basic for them, the Ten Commandments are what is basic. The covenant is basic. But it is necessary in order to actually live the Ten Commandments, also to know the Talmud. I explain that because although we Christians do not follow that Jewish tradition in all its development, it is already evident in the Old Testament itself that this process is going on. And when we get to the New Testament, we see Jesus talking to the rabbis, that is to the Pharisees and to the scribes, who were the people who carried on this tradition, arguing with them and discussing with them. Sometimes we get the impression that Jesus is repudiating the traditions and the discussions and the work of the rabbis and the scribes. But modern scholars say that is not really so. Jesus himself was a Jew, and he observes the law to the letter. In my first lecture, I pointed out that Jesus says, not one letter of the law, not the least letter of the law, will be taken away until it is fulfilled, till it accomplishes the reason that God gave it. Jesus was not an enemy of the Jewish rabbis. He was not an enemy of the Jewish tradition. Rather, he was part of that tradition, and he interpreted that tradition in his own way as the rabbis interpreted it in their ways. And they didn't all interpret it exactly alike. There were different schools among them. So that's another element in Old Testament morality. When we read the Old Testament, we have to see that it's a history of people trying to apply the principles of the Ten Commandments in an effective and practical way to the changing circumstances of life. And that it contains tremendous wisdom in that way. And when we get to the New Testament, we're also going to be sympathetic to that element of casuistry, which is part of the biblical tradition. That is quite different, however, than the spirit of the prophets. And I think we see that these are two complementary features of the Old Testament. On the one hand, we find those people who are very concerned and rightly so, with the practice of the law down to its details. I once talked to a rabbi in my field of medical ethics, and we were talking about the question of euthanasia. And of course, Orthodox Jews oppose euthanasia and strongly affirm the value of life which God has given us. But we talked about the case of somebody whose life is drawing to an end and there's, they can't do very much anymore. And he said, well, even then, we Jews consider that life is precious because 
there's still time left to perform a few mitzvahs. A mitzvah is one of the things carrying out some prescription of the law. And the Jew sees the carrying out of every prescription of the law as an act of worship. It's an act of honoring God. You not only do it because it's right and because it's good for you and good for others, but also because it honors God who made us. So every obedience to the law is an act of worship and of virtue. And that builds the Jewish character, this constant thought of what would God like me to do today? How many things can I do today that will show I love and appreciate God? And so even when a little life is left, you can at least say a prayer. That's something precious. This spirit of observance of the law, trying to carry it out in its details, was not something merely slavish or servile or conforming. It was from the heart. It was an act of worship. But of course, it could easily become a burden. One can become scrupulous, so worried about the details of a law or regulation that one forgets its purpose. One forgets the spirit of the law. And then law becomes something that is deadening rather than life strengthening and affirming. And that's what the prophets tell us. So the prophets stand in a way in contrast to the scribes. Both of them are seeking to obey God, to love God, but one puts the emphasis on the concrete act, the other puts it on the motive and the spirit. We can learn something from that. If we only seek the spirit, if we say to ourselves, well, I love my neighbor, so whatever I do must be okay. And don't think of the concrete thing that we have to do to show our love. Our love becomes mere sentiment. In the epistle of St. James in the New Testament, which is one of the most Jewish books in the New Testament, St. James says it's not enough to say you love your brother and then say to him, keep warm and have a good meal and go off when you know he doesn't have clothes and he doesn't have a good meal. Good wishes are not good deeds. We have to be practical, concrete in what we do. We hear a lot of talk right now in theology in the field of sexuality about being responsible our sexual life is supposed to be responsible, but they don't tell us what responsibility is. How you must behave in your sexual life to be a really responsible person. We have to have concrete, practical rules of life. But those things too are of useless if they don't have the right spirit and the right motivation. So we need both things, and we find both in the Old Testament. The prophetic emphasis on attitude, the legal emphasis on practical morality, on being objective about what we do, and about being responsible in a concrete way, and not in vague sentimental generalities. Now, I've already mentioned that there's another thing in prophecy, and that is that prophecy looks forward. Sometimes we read in books on the scriptures that we mustn't think that prophecy is just foretelling what's going to happen next year. And that's true. The prophets very commonly are not talking about the future so much as their own times and they're interpreting their own times. But prophecy does look forward. 
You can't leave that out. The prophetic books of the Bible all look forward to a better time. They're books of hope. Most of them are written in times when the Jews were in great trouble, when they were exiled, when they were persecuted, even when they were martyred. And they are books of hope, looking forward to a better time, to the future. And as the Old Testament goes along, that future is no longer just justice and peace on this earth, as important as that is. The prophets began, particularly in the book of Daniel, to tell us about the future life, that we look forward under God's guidance, not only for a good life on this earth, but for a continuance of that good life in heaven. And so we can't leave that aspect of the Old Testament out. The Old Testament is saying we're teaching a morality, but it's a morality which is imperfect. It's a morality in transition, a morality that is looking towards something that's going to happen in the future. And we know that that hope is crystallized in the Jewish mind by the idea of the Messiah. There were different ideas among the Jews about the Messiah. And in the Old Testament, it's not always so clear just what is meant. Is this a time, an age of justice and peace? Or is it a person who will be the king of justice and peace? Well, probably both. But in any case, they look forward to that better time when God would manifest in the world the perfection of morality, when things would be restored, when justice would be brought about and peace established, when the lion would lie down with the lamb, as one of the prophets says, when there would be true peace because there would be true justice respect for human rights. That is at the heart of the Old Testament when we take it as a whole. Even in the Torah, in the books of Moses, we hear talk of a prophet to come, a great prophet, who would be, as it were, the final prophet, the prophet who at last brings the fullness of God's teaching to realization in the world. And of course, we Christians know that that promise of the Messiah is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And when we come to realize that, when we read, for example, in the New Testament, how when Jesus began to preach and work miracles, John the Baptist, who was in prison, sent some of his followers to Jesus and said to Jesus, are you the one who is to come? Are you the Messiah? Jesus didn't say he was the Messiah. He simply said, well, you see, the lame walk, the blind see, and the truth, the good news, is preached to the poor. He gave the signs that the messianic age was at hand. And we know by faith that Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed of God, and that in him, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of justice and peace has begun. But that does not mean that the Old Testament, therefore, is done away with. It means that the Old Testament is fulfilled at last, everything in the Old Testament is brought to fullness and fruition. Consequently, we can't understand the New Testament without understanding the Old Testament. The New Testament presupposes and is a kind of commentary and interpretation of the Old Testament. It tells us what God had in mind in the choosing of the Jews what mission he had for them, 
what God had in mind in giving us the law through Moses, what God had in mind through teachers of wisdom, through the Psalms and the poetry of the Old Testament, through the discussion of the scribes and the rabbis. All of this was brought to fulfillment in Jesus, who is the fulfillment of the Old Testament, the realization of what the prophets foretold. To understand Jesus, then, we have to understand him as a Jew, as someone who fulfilled the law, lived it himself, understood its wisdom thoroughly, interpreted it rightly, and taught it to us in its real meaning. So don't lay aside your Old Testament. It may sometimes seem strange, but read it through, and the New Testament will come alive. Now, in the next lecture, then, I want to go on and say something about how in the New Testament, we have an interpretation of the Old Testament, an interpretation which gives it this fullest meaning. And I would suggest that you look in your Bible in Matthew to the Sermon on the Mount and notice how a little way into the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about the Ten Commandments. And as he goes through the Ten Commandments, he explains the wrong understanding of the commandment and the right understanding of the commandment. He is acting exactly as a rabbi would, explaining it. But different from the rabbis, Matthew says, he speaks with authority, with authority greater than Moses himself. And so there we have for us in the Bible, in the Sermon on the Mount, the new Torah. Jesus goes up the mountain as Moses went up the mountain, and he speaks the Sermon on the Mount, and that becomes then the heart of the New Testament, as the story of Moses is the heart of the Old Testament. That will be the subject of our next lecture, and I hope you will be with us. And in the meantime, that you will open up and read the Ten Commandments as you find them in the 20th chapter of Exodus and the Sermon on the Mount. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.